Samuel chapter 7, God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been, with, I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from feeding the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people would not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I would also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. 
And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Well, thank you, Gillian. Uh, you need to uh, keep your the reading handy. So uh, inside your little handouts today, uh, there's that kind of colourful on that side, Bible reading on the other side, a little outline there of uh, where we're going this morning. It'll be helpful. Uh, keep that up. Make sure I'm not making anything up and that actually this is God speaking to us. Uh, but let's uh, pray for his help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it, that we would come to know you more fully. We would come to know your great and precious promises, that we would come to trust them and believe them and cling to them and love and praise you as we ought. Amen. Well, the story this far. Uh, so those who are joining us for the first time uh, this term today, uh, welcome, as I said. Uh, but this term, we've been doing sort of a high altitude, you know, 35,000 feet kind of flyover of the entire story of the Bible. You know, just a you know, little, little, little thing that we're doing together. Uh, but what we've seen is that the whole Bible, we've written over a few thousand years, covering just thousands and thousands of years of human history, many, many stories of many, many individuals and nations and peoples. It actually just tells one big story, one story from beginning to end. The story of all human history, from the creation to God's promised new creation. And it's the story all about God's plan to build a kingdom. See, we've seen that from the very beginning, little bit by little bit by little bit, God's been revealing to us what his coming kingdom will be like. Kind of like a painting or a tapestry coming together, one brush stroke or needle thread at a time. Each little stroke or thread adds a little bit more shape, a little bit more texture, a little bit more clarity, slowly filling out the picture of what God's kingdom will be like. Way back in the very, very beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. And so I just want to uh, direct you to this little chart. So right over there on the left at creation, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. And in that little chart underneath, we can see uh, we saw the kind of the model, the blueprint for what the pattern for what God's kingdom looks like. And it looks like God's people in God's place 
under God's rule and receiving God's incredible blessing. We saw Adam and Eve in the beautiful Garden of Eden where God came and walked with them and he gave them his blessing to fill the earth and subdue it, to enjoy the good things that he had made, to eat from every tree but not to eat from one tree for if they did, they would die. We see there that they had perfect relationship with God, with each other and with the creation that God had made a very, very good beginning, the pattern of God's, peop- uh, God's kingdom. But then you can see in that second column, the kingdom perished. What we call the fall when Adam and Eve rejected God as king. They rejected his rule, said, no, I don't want to obey your rule. I think I can make up my own rule better. And we saw everything perish. Everything went from very, very good to very, very bad in one little bite. And then God's people, Adam and Eve, were cut off from God. They were banished from God's place. Their relationship with each other became hard and broken. And instead of blessing, there was curse and shame and death. But we also saw on that day, in the midst of all this tragedy and curse, hope and promise. One tiny little seed. Because God promised that from Adam and Eve's family would come a son who would crush the snake that deceived them, who would deal with the problem of sin. One little promise that like a seed lay dormant, then all of a sudden the kingdom began to grow. Last week we looked there at the blue section, the promised kingdom, where God chose one man, Abraham. He called Abraham and his promise grew. He said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a nation who will be God's people. Actually, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And I'm going to take you to my special place, the land of Canaan. And I'm going to give you my rule, the rule of circumcision. And he promised not only to bless Abraham and his descendants, but actually through Abraham to bless all peoples of the entire world. God's promise of his kingdom was growing and it was growing through Abraham. But while his promise of his kingdom was growing, so was his promise of his serpent-crushing king. God spoke through Abraham's grandson Jacob that of all of his 12 sons, the serpent-crusher would come from one son, Judah. And that not only would he be one who would come and crush the snake, crush Satan, the devil, and deal with sin. But he would also be a lion king who would rule forever, who would defeat his enemies, who would rule all nations. And actually, he'd turn up on a donkey. But the promise wouldn't come without a whole lot of waiting and a whole lot of trouble. From that point, Abraham's family grew and grew and grew. 
They became slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. And then finally, after 400 years, God rescued them from Egypt. This tiny little seed of promise from one man had grown into a great nation of a million people strong. And then even though this nation of Israel kept rebelling against God, kept rejecting his rule, he stayed faithful to his promises. He brought them into the land of Canaan. He drove out their enemies. He established them and placed his king over them. I told you it's a big project. We're covering a lot of ground here. And today, we come to the part of the story where we see God's promises to establish his kingdom partially fulfilled. We see the promise of God's people, now a great nation, partially fulfilled. We see the promise to bring them into God's place, the land of Canaan, partially fulfilled. We see the promise to bring them under his rule in the king that God chose, partially fulfilled. We see the promise to give them his blessing, his rest, partially fulfilled. So we come to point one, rest is the best. Have a look at verse one with me in your readings. The king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now I'm a, I'm a worker, I love to work. Actually, I kind of struggle with holidays because uh, I just want to do something. I want to go and kind of be productive or make something or fix something or dig a hole, I don't know. But I, I still, I love nothing better than at the end of a long, hard day, kicking back and having a rest after a hard day's work. Isn't, it, isn't rest great? Rest is the best. When you finish your toil, you can leave the stress behind cuddle up on the couch or play a board game with the kids or have a barbecue with some friends around, evenings, weekends, holidays, rest is the best, isn't it? But actually rest in the Bible is something even bigger and better and more wonderful and more deep and rich than even that. See, for those of us who are here at the start of the term, at the very beginning, this word rest should actually ring some bells for us because rest was what God did after he'd subdued the chaos and brought order to the world. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. See, back there in the beginning, at the pattern of God's kingdom, we see that actually rest is what God's kingdom looks like. Rest is the world as it should be, as God intended it, with God's people in perfect relationship with him, in perfect relationship with each other and in perfect relationship with the world that he has created. Rest is the goal that all of creation and history is working towards. And God had promised Israel that if they kept his covenant, if they chose to continue to follow him as king, they would live long in the land of Canaan, 
They would have rest from all their enemies. They would have rest from chaos and conflict and war. Rest from purposelessness and wandering like they had in the desert. Rest from futility of having all of their hard work eaten by maggots and dust and rust and, and drought. Rest from plague and famine and disease and beasts and toil and hunger and poverty and childlessness and slavery. Rest even, God had promised, from premature death. Rest. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? I mean, what more could you want in life than a life that looks like that? A life of rest. And now we read here in verse 1, Israel are beginning to do in the land of Canaan that God had given them what God had told Adam and Eve to do way back at the beginning of the garden. They're established in the land. They can fill and subdue it. They have rest to be fruitful and multiply. Rest to rule the land that God gave them to rule. No longer wandering in tents through the wilderness, but living in houses and cities that actually someone else built. Eating from trees that they never planted. Drinking water from wells they didn't dig. Making wine from vines they hadn't cultivated. They had it made in the shade. Rest is best. But this rest didn't just come out of nowhere. It came through the rule of a servant king, point two. Have you ever uh, asked someone for something you really shouldn't have asked for? I know I have, probably lots of times. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, Chris Baldry was one of my youth leaders at church. Uh, and he had a sports car that he used to drive us around in. Uh, and just after I got my P-plates, uh, he bought a newer model. And he had his old one just sitting in the driveway. So I figured I'd ask Chris if, you know, I could drive it around for a while. I, have no, I still have no idea why he said yes, but he did. And uh, it was fun for a little while until I backed it into a letterbox and then had to spend the next six months paying him off for all the damage. Have you ever asked for something you shouldn't have asked for? I certainly shouldn't have asked for that. Well, when the Israelites first got into the promised land, they asked God for something they should not have asked for. Even though God was their king, they asked God to give them a king like all the other nations. Even though they were supposed to be a different nation, a nation set apart, a holy nation, they asked God to give them a king so that they could be like the other nations. Well, God gave them a king who served himself. A king who he warned would be trouble. He gave them what they asked for, a king like the nations. And it didn't go very well. And then after this king, God said, let me show you the kind of king you do need. Not a king like the nations, not a king who serves himself, a king who is a servant. Have a look at verse 8. Now then, God says, tell my servant David, 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. He was a shepherd. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. If you just scan down through the rest of our passage, you'll see that actually 12 times in these verses, David is called God's servant. Actually, two of them, God is calling David his servant, but 10 of them is David talking to God, calling himself God's servant. And here in this moment, David gives us a little glimpse, actually God gives us a little glimpse through David, of the kind of king God's people need. A king who would shepherd his people, not feed off them. A king whose goal was to bring God glory, not himself. That's why David wanted to build God a temple. A king who longed for God's will to be done, not his own. A king who loved and obeyed God's word. A king who would defeat the enemies of God's people and bring the rest that God had promised. And ultimately, a king who came not to be served by others, but to serve. In a world of, uh, full of self-serving and ego-driven rulers, I'm really glad to live in Australia. Not because our rulers aren't self-seeking and ego-driven, but because, you know, we've made sure they have no real power so they can't actually do anything. See, we know what people are like. We know what a self-serving and ego-driven person who gains power can do. It's easy to imagine what it would be like to live under someone like that. But it's hard to imagine, isn't it, what it would be like to live under someone who isn't. It's hard to imagine what it would be like to live under a king who had absolute authority but who was 100% selfless and committed to doing what is best for his people, committed to honouring God. And God says, that is the kind of king my kingdom needs. A king who is a servant who cares for my people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. A king who's more interested in establishing God's house than his own. Have a look at verse 2. David said, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. David looks around and says, I want to build God's house. And actually, we learn here, Point three, we need a house. Well, last week, I think it was last week, wasn't it? We had our men's night. Kind of feels like two weeks ago now. Last week, we had a, a great blokes and boys night. Uh, our walk got rained out, but, uh, and kind of by the end of the night, it was so foggy, you couldn't see the food on your plate. Uh, but we had a fantastic night, didn't we? And, uh, you know, hanging around the spit and just enjoying each other's company. Wonderful, wonderful night. Um, but obviously, to get it all going, you know, we had to head out to the farm a bit early and get the fire going and set up the spit and get the meat on. And 
we went out there and we'd set up the pit, we'd started the fire, we'd put up the rotisserie and got out the cutlery and the chairs and the lights and everything was set up. And then we realised we were missing something vital. Can you guess what we were missing? The meat. I'd left the meat at home in the fridge. It's kind of important, right? In a spit, that's the main ingredient. You know, that's what we gathered for, for the meat. Well, as David settled into his newly built palace in the newly conquered city of Jerusalem, he looked around at the nation settled, everything going according to God's plan, and he realised there was a really important ingredient that was missing. And this is when he speaks to Nathan and says, hang on. God is still, God's ark is still remaining in a tent. See, the ark was a symbol of God's rule. It actually was a box with a throne on top, symbolising to God's people that God is king. And they brought this box everywhere they went as they travelled on their way to the promised land and it, and it lived inside a special tent. And this tent, this tabernacle, was the symbol that God is king who lives and dwells with his people and rules. So David knew that the most important ingredient in God's kingdom is God himself. That the greatest blessing of being God's people is relationship with God. The most wonderful thing about being established in God's place is that God is there with you. And so now that they're settled, now that they have rest, David can see that the house that bears God's name needs to be established too. See, David wanted to build a temple, a house to honour God so that all people, all peoples of the world could look and see and know that God's name is great. But God had other ideas. Have a good verse 9. God said he would build David a house And make David's name great. Halfway through verse 9. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Just down a few lines, halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. See, David was right. They did need a house, but not the kind of house that David was thinking. God would build a house, a kingdom for David through David's offspring. Can you see the thread of promise, the seed of promise, of the serpent crusher, the donkey riding, blessing bringing lion of Judah, the king who would rule forever would be a son of David, the descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah. God would establish his kingdom forever and God would be his father and he would be God's son. He would be the one who would build a house for God's name. 
He would be the one who would establish God's presence and glory in the midst of God's people in a way that would not be partial, but would stay forever and ever. Well, just one generation later, after David died, his son did become king, Solomon. And it's kind of the high point of Israel's history as a nation. Because under Solomon, David had already defeated all the enemies. There were no enemies left. They had incredible blessing and riches. And Solomon built a beautiful house in the Lord's name. A beautiful temple. And God caused his name to dwell there. And came down in the temple on a thick cloud. But actually this was only a partial fulfilment. See, notice what God said to David, point four. You're not there yet. Have a look again at verse 9. God said to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. What's going on here? <laughs> God has already provided them a place, right? They're in the land that he promised. He has already planted them. And, and we just read in verse 1, he has already given them rest. But God is saying, no, I will do that. All those things I've promised, I will do. You think those promises have come already, but you haven't seen anything yet. So God is showing David and us that back in David's day, it was only a partial fulfilment. They weren't there yet. God's true place still on its way. God's true home still on its way. His true rest still on its way. And even that fancy temple, God was saying, actually, no, the true house for my name is still on its way. God's kingdom is still coming. It's bigger and better and more wonderful than even the glorious kingdom in Solomon and David's day. Well, if you look over the back of your outline there, you'll see, actually, we've got that line that continues unbroken right up until Solomon. You know that actually this wonderful rest that Israel enjoyed didn't last out one generation. <laughs> After hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years actually waiting and waiting for the promises, they had one generation before disaster struck. One generation of peace and prosperity one generation where the nations came to Israel to be blessed. One generation before it was gone forever. Because David's son Solomon did what the kings of the other nations do that God had said your kings must not do. He built up huge wealth, many wives, turned his heart to worship other gods. And so, as soon as Solomon died, 
God tore this partial kingdom into two warring kingdoms. That's what that split is. The kingdom was divided in two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Never again would they reach that heyday. Never again would they all be one nation established in the land of Canaan. See, that place wasn't God's final place. This is actually really, really important for us to be able to understand the Bible properly. Because it means that the particular promises back then that God had given to the nation of Israel on their way into the promised land, the promises that if you obey my covenant, then this, if you obey my covenant, you will be blessed. If you obey my covenant, you will have rest. You won't have enemies. You will live long in the land. You'll be healthy and wealthy. You'll have lots of children. Everything will be wonderful. All of those here and now earthly material blessings that were promised to Israel were based on whether they remained with God as their king where they obeyed his covenant. When they broke his covenant, that partial kingdom was torn apart. It was just a temporary stage in history and those promises don't apply today because that partial fulfilment has been and gone. See, we're not waiting for a return to Canaan. We're not waiting for all of the Israelites to come back and settle in the Levant. No, we're waiting for the true son of David to bring the true kingdom where we will be established forever with true rest and true blessing. So God's people look for a better place, ruled by a better king, receiving far greater blessings. In this partial kingdom, we get a little glimpse, a clearer glimpse. The picture's starting to fill out. There's a few more brush strokes, a few more threads of what King God's kingdom will be. A glimpse of how the son of David would establish God's house. That his name and his spirit would be in the midst of his people forever. How God would one day, through the son of David, establish his forever place under his forever rule, receiving his forever blessings.